Hello and welcome to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. Today we're going to take a typical example of a passage that is cherry-picked from the New Testament by those who believe that Messiah is God in the flesh and used by them to allegedly prove their position. You'll see, however, that it does not prove their position at all. And the verse I'm talking about, which is actually a favorite verse of Trinitarians and others who wish to promote the idolatrous belief that a man can be God, that verse is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And we'll be disproving an alleged proof of Messiah's deity. We'll be applying common sense to a favorite passage of the God-in-the-flesh Messiah promoters. So in this discussion, I will refute a passage from the New Testament that is commonly used to prove that Messiah is God-in-the-flesh. It is a verse that is among a handful of favorite verses put forward by those who wish to prove that Messiah is God incarnate. I will disprove the argument by showing that the only proof the passage presents is proof of an unrealistic, close-minded bias in choosing which rendering of a questionable New Testament passage to accept. Those who claim this verse supports their God-in-the-flesh Messiah doctrine intentionally fail to inform their listeners or readers that the rendering supporting their view is questionable, that is, the translation is questionable, and that many translations, other than the one they purposely select to support their claim, do not support their mystery, idolatrous, man-god teaching. Or perhaps they are honestly unaware of the questionable rendering of the passage in English translations of the New Testament. I will graciously assume that to be the case. All right, first, I'll be reading from the King James Version. Excuse me, the King James Version. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 from the King James Version. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Notice that God was manifest in the flesh, according to the King James Version. I have longed with great anticipation to arrive at this verse, actually, and discuss it since I know many people feel it provides irrefutable proof that Messiah is God in the flesh. However, in truth, it does not provide that proof at all. First, those who think this verse proves that Messiah is God need to consider the context from which the verse is taken. Uh, I tell you what, the people who promote eternity and the God-in-the-flesh doctrine, they absolutely despise context, and they try to avoid it at all cost. We find the following verse within that context in the chapter just preceding it. I'll present the verse from the New American Standard Version. However, it says the same thing in other versions. First, I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
verses 5 and 6. Now, again, this is the context. This is just one chapter ahead of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 from the NASB. For there is one God and, note the distinction there, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, or Messiah Yeshua, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. All right, this is a very important verse, which leaves no doubt as to the distinction between God and Yeshua the Messiah. Notice, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Messiah Yeshua. The Apostle Paul states clearly that there is only one God, not three in one or a oneness man God, and separately, Paul states, distinct from that God, there is also one mediator between God and men. That mediator is the man, not God, Yeshua the Messiah. The verse unquestionably presents a God and a separate mediator between that God and mankind. Even the standard common sense understanding and definition of mediator has fallen victim to the outrageous mystery that Trinitarians and other Mystery Babylon man-god promoters run to in order to avoid a rational discussion. So what is a mediator? A mediator is a person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. A mediator is a go-between. An example the government appointed a mediator to assist in finding a resolution to the dispute. So, the definition of mediator clearly implies two separate and distinct entities. Common sense dictates that God and the mediator between God and man are not the same entity. Therefore, the mediator, Messiah Yeshua, is not God. Do you understand? Really, in, 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 the, in, in a sense, a mediator really implies three separate entities. You have two people in dispute, or two individuals, or two entities in dispute, and then you have a separate entity, a third entity, that mediates between the two. So Paul's clear, unambiguous statement found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, is found just a few verses prior to the alleged proof verse used by the God-in-the-flesh advocates. And it must be kept in mind as 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is considered. Okay, so if scriptural context is not enough to show that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is misinterpreted, then let me provide more proof. A sad yet provable scribal manipulation. I will present evidence which proves 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to be a classic example of scribal manipulation. Depending upon which version of the Bible you read, it can have completely different meanings. It is also a classic example of why the King James, excuse me, the King James Version only fanatics 
ferociously censor and condemn Bibles which utilize manuscripts other than those which support their biased beliefs, despite the fact that many useful manuscripts have been discovered since the King James Version was published. I mean, really, people, if you go back and study it, since the King James Version came out way back centuries ago, there have been many, many, many more manuscripts or manuscript fragments of the New Testament found, which has assisted translators in correcting the errors that are found within the King James Version, and there are errors. So I will again quote from the King James Version and the NASB. The difference in the verses will be obvious. I am placing various portions of the verses on separate lines in the written material for a reason that will be more evident when I present the final and perhaps most irrefutable proof that this verse does not teach that Messiah is God. So if you, if you go to the website, TorahMessiah.org, and you actually download or look at this material, you'll see the verses, and they're scattered in se- on separate lines to help space it out and make it more uh, easily viewed. But you don't have to do that. I mean, you can listen to me talking, and I'll be describing it. So again, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and this is the King James Version. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now I'll read the same verse from the New American Standard Bible. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You probably noticed the King James Version says God was manifest, whereas the New American Standard Version and many others say He who was manifest. To limit the length of this article, I will not quote the entire passage from other versions. However, I will denote whether he or God is shown in those other randomly selection transla- excuse me, randomly selected translations. Okay, for instance, in the new in the New Revised Standard Version, he is used, not God. In the English Version Bible, again, he is used, not God. In the 1890 Darby Bible, God is used. In the Holman Christian Standard Bible, he is used. In Young's literal translation, God is used. However, though all versions I'm referencing are literal translations. So that's actually a bit of a misnomer for the publishers of that to say a Young's literal translation, since they are all, the ones I use anyway, are literal translations. And finally, the Jewish New Testament. He is used in the verse. By the way, this is actually not a Jewish Bible. The translator actually supports the Trinity, last time I checked. Therefore, he obviously did not bias his rendering of he to support an anti-Trinity stance. All right, so why the dramatic difference? Why is there a difference? Because, I mean, there's a big difference here, people. God was manifest versus he who was manifest, and which in the context is referring to Yeshua there. So that's a big difference, God or he, the word that's used there, the word that's translated. So why is there a difference? 
Why is there no is there no firm agreement? Well, the simple answer is because some Greek manuscripts have it one way, and some Greek manuscripts have it the other way. I will quote from an excellent book, actually. It's a, a book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, by Dr. Bart D. Ehrman. And I will quote from this book in an attempt to further explain the problem. See, he discusses this verse in two pages of his book and presents hard evidence that the relative pronoun who, which was, now I'm talking about within the actual manuscripts in the Greek uh, language, the relative pronoun who was intentionally changed by a scribe to the word God possibly as early as the 3rd century. Note, the who is often rendered as he. Therefore, who may be even a better rendering. In other words, when the New American Standards say he who was revealed in the flesh, it could also be, by, and by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who, notice, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, blah, blah, blah. So that's what he's referring to when he talks about the relative pronoun who. Now, I don't mean to get too technical here. The, the point I'm trying to make here, people, is that it depends on the manuscript they're using. Some manuscripts use the Greek term for God. Others do not. And that's a big difference. All right. So let's go on with a, a quote from the book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture by Dr. Bart D. Ehrman. And quote, precisely, and this was within his discussion of the passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Precisely here, however, is the textual problem. For the relative who, or relative pronoun who, has been subjected to alteration in the course of the text transmission. There are reasons for suspecting that the change was not an accident. Did you, did you hear that? Now, I, I skipped. I've, I've left out some sentences just to limit the size of this particular quote. Let me read that again. Dr. Ehrman says this, and this is with regard to the various manuscripts for this particular passage. The relative pronoun who has been subjected to alteration in the course, course of the text transmission. What he's talking about there is, the New Testament is taken from copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of an alleged original. And during the transmission of the copies, the text can be altered by scribes. That's what he's referring to here. There are some Christians that seem to think the New Testament just fell out of heaven in perfect form. That's not what happened to people. We don't, even, we don't actually have, there are no original manuscripts of the New Testament. All that exists are fragments of manuscripts, and mainly it's fragments, and they're fragments of various copies of copies of copies. We don't really know how close they are to an original. Now, I'm not saying they're all bad. That's not what I'm saying at all, and I'll get into that uh, a little bit later to try to calm the nerves of those who may think that, oh, no, the New Testament's corrupt. Okay, I'll, I'll talk about that later. Right now, we're just focusing on, on one passage. So again, what he says is, that the relative pronoun who has been subjected to alteration in the course of the text transmission. And then a little bit later he says, 
There are reasons for suspecting that the change was not an accident. In other words, it was an intentional scribal corruption. And continuing his quote, it should first be observed that four of the uh, uncanal, I may say that wrong, uncanal witnesses that are manuscripts that attest to the word God do so only in corrections like you and I would would cross out a word and write a new one if we were if we were reading something and we thought oh that's not right we'd cross the word out and put a new one in that's what he's referring to here a manipulation by a scribe okay this shows not only that the word god was the preferred reading of later scribes but also that it did not creep into tradition unawares in other words what he's saying there That's what the biased Trinitarian scribes wanted the verse to say. So they put it in there intentionally. Continuing, second, we cannot overlook what the reading God provides for the Orthodox scribe. It provides a clear affirmation of the doctrine that God became incarnate in the person of Yeshua. Now, I added Yeshua, he would say Jesus Christ. So, what it does is it, it allows the scribe to, for the orthodox scribe, that is, who believes in the Trinity, it allows him to put within the passage, to put within the New Testament, his own affirmation of the doctrine that God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. This certainly is the orthodox, and continuing his quote, this certainly is the orthodox mystery that is the mystery that refers that's referred to in that very passage. It was God who was manifest in the flesh. Continue, this is continuing his quote. It was God who was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, etc. All right, so in other words, the Christian scribes could not let the opportunity pass to tweak the manuscript to support their own personal Trinitarian bias or the bias of the one paying them or ordering them to copy the manuscript. Now, continuing on with what Dr. Ehrman says, that the reading God cannot be original is shown both by the character of the manuscript attestation, that is, the earliest and superior manuscripts all support the relative pronoun who, not the word God, and by the fact that ancient creedal fragments typically begin precisely in this way, that is, with a relative pronoun, such as who. The change must have been made fairly early, at least during the 3rd century, given its widespread attestation from the 4th century on. should be noted the Council of Nicaea was in the 4th century, the year 325 CE. Now, continuing, it can therefore, according to Dr. Bart Ehrman, it can therefore best be explained as an anti-adoptionistic corruption or an intentional change that stresses the deity of Christ. So, and that ends the quote, the very early 4th century, that is in 325 CE, is when the Council of Nicaea permanently decreed under pressure from Emperor Constantine, that Messiah is God. That's when it was officially indoctrinated in the Council of Nicaea. That's when Jesus 
was said to be God. That was under Emperor Constantine. Therefore, the date of the intentional scribal corruption is not a surprise nor a coincidence. This just happened to be during one of the most hostile times during which the debate was raging as to whether or not Messiah is God, with virtually none of those debating being schooled in Torah since those believers had already been basically eliminated by Rome's efforts to rid the New Testament faith of all Torah proponents. And I will discuss that in a separate podcast, and that began as early as the 2nd century. That is why manuscripts earlier than the 3rd century, during which some of the Messiah's original Torah-knowledgeable followers still existed, say who, and those after the 3rd century say God in that passage. Those of you who think Messiah's followers have always considered him to be God in the flesh are terribly deceived by Christianity's pagan Rome historic foundation and influences. Now, you notice I mentioned earlier, he mentioned anti-adoptionistic. Now, what is an adoptionist? Okay, now we'll, we'll, we'll define an adoptionist, okay? Adoptionist believed that Messiah was a full flesh and blood human being who was neither literally pre-existent nor, for most, most adoptionists, born of a literal virgin. Messiah, according to the adoptionist, was born and lived as all other humans. But at some point of his existence, usually his baptism, according to adoptionists, Messiah was adopted by God to stand in special relationship with himself and to mediate his will on earth, that is, God's will on earth. Only in this sense was he the Son of God. Basically, he was adopted. Messiah was not excuse me. Messiah was not divine by nature, but was human in every sense of the term. And that ends the quote. Now that was a quote from Dr. Ehrman, defining adoptionist. Okay? And you can rewind and listen to it if you if you wish again. But basically, an adoptionist believes that Messiah Yeshua was adopted by God generally at his baptism. That's basically the definition. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is a corrupt passage, which at best forfeits it from being used to either prove or disprove Messiah's deity. In other words, it could be right, it could be wrong. That is the, the use of the term God in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 16. But since we can't possibly know, I mean, in reality we do know, we actually do know that the word isn't God. But I'm being gracious, and let's say we don't. So, at best, you got to toss it aside because it proves neither. It can't be used, in other words, to, to allegedly prove Messiah's deity. It can't be used because, at best, it is a very doubtful passage. I only present my case to refute those who insist that 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 proves that God in the the, the God in the flesh ideology. My review of of numerous literal translations shows that the more modern translations which have more manuscript evidence to support their translation by the way, all right? 
generally do not translate the term in 1 Timothy 3.16 as God. The evidence definitely leans in favor of proving that the term God in 1 Timothy 3.16 was a premeditated scribal manipulation of the text by someone who believed in the Trinity. However, I will not press the issue. Instead, I will show grace to the Trinitarians and others who worship an idolatrous man-god Messiah and simply declare, declare the verse to be inconclusive. Those who disagree with me do not usually show such grace and staunchly refuse to admit that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is a doubtful and potentially manipulated passage. All right. The final nail in the coffin to prove that this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, does not support a God in the flesh Messiah. So if you you don't even have to you could have started right here at this discussion. And I can still prove that 1 Timothy 3.16 is not referring to Yeshua as God in the flesh. All right? You could start right here. But of course we just covered the and discussed the fact that it's a it's a doubtful passage and that the true translation is not God was manifest in the flesh, but the true translation is he who was revealed or manifest in the flesh. But just let's just assume that I haven't even talked about that. This by itself, what I'm about to discuss now, disproves that passage. In other words, it, it shows that it does not prove Messiah to be God in the flesh. All right, so I will now provide additional proof that 1 Timothy 3.16 cannot possibly be referring to God as the one who was manifest in the flesh. So let me once again provide the verse from the two translations I read from earlier, first the King James and then the NASB. So first from the King James, 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Then 1 Timothy 3.16 from the NASB, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. All right. So this verse states the following regarding the entity or person being referenced. First, that person was justified or vindicated in the Spirit. Second, he was seen or beheld by angels. Third, he was proclaimed among the nations or preached to the Gentiles. Fourth, he was believed on in the world. And fifth, he was received up into glory. Now, I'm going to focus on what it says about he was justified or vindicated in the Spirit. He was seen or beheld by angels, and he was received up in the glory. So first, he was justified or vindicated. All right, now wait a minute. Are those who believe that Messiah is God in the flesh wishing us to believe that God needs to be justified or vindicated? My friend, God does not need justification or vindication. Therefore, this verse cannot possibly be referring to God. Boom. 
that right there destroys any support for those who think who say that this verse is teaching Messiah is God in the flesh. God does not need to be justified or vindicated. This cannot possibly be referring to God. Next, it also says he was seen by angels. So do those who wish us to believe that Messiah is God want us to believe that the angels had never seen God? Not only had God been seen, that is basically understood, by the angels, as in, as I said, as, as having been understood, he was their creator. However, Messiah was not seen, according to this verse, basically, by implication, until he was born on earth. Therefore, it perfectly applies to the true Messiah, while clearly showing the concept that Messiah is God to be a silly and ridiculous idea. To be precise, no one, including angels, has ever literally seen the incomprehensible, unapproachable God in his essence. And for certain, no, certain no man has. In fact, this is directly stated in the very epistle, very epistle Paul's writing here in, in 1 Timothy. It's directly stated in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. And I'll, I'll even read from the King James Version. So 1 Timothy 6, 16, talking about God, excuse me, God, who hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. everlasting. Amen. All right, so there are several other New Testament passages which clearly state no man has ever seen God. And they were written by someone who personally knew and accompanied Yeshua prior to his death and resurrection. But I will reserve that topic for the discussion in which I provide proof that Messiah is, is not God based upon the common sense fact that he, Messiah, was seen. Now, my point there is, there's passages in the New Testament that directly state no one has ever seen God. Now, this was stated by the apostles in their writings. Now, since some of those apostles actually traveled around with Yeshua and saw him basically every single day, if they say that no man has ever seen God, obviously Yeshua is not God. I mean, <laughs> that is one of the most common sense things. People, go check that out, okay? The New Testament says no one has ever seen God. And it was said by authors within the New Testament who knew Yeshua personally and traveled with him. Therefore, Yeshua was not, is not, and never will be God in the flesh. Common sense, people. Go check it out. And, and I really don't know how the Trinitarians and God in the flesh people get around that. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's an in-your-face rebuke of the God in the flesh Messiah idolatry. All right. Finally, going back to 1 Timothy 3.16, where it's, it talks about he was received up into glory. All right, so are those wishing us to believe that Messiah is God, wanting us to think that God had to be received up into glory? Is that what they want us to think? That God had to be received up into glory? This is yet another preposterous concept. 
since God was already glorious and had no need to be received up into any sort of glory. He is and always has been in glory. Okay, the other two items uh, listed in 1 Timothy 3.16 could be applied either to God or Messiah. Therefore, they contribute nothing to the issue. I'm referring to it. It also says, He was proclaimed among the nations or preached to the Gentiles, and he was believed on in the world. That could apply to either God or Messiah. However, their application would fit the human non-God Messiah, Yeshua, probably better, particularly given the clear reference to a non-God Messiah in the other three listed items, those items being he was justified or vindicated in the Spirit, which can only happen to a man. God needs no justification or vindication. And then it says he was seen or beheld by angels. Again, that can only apply to a man. And finally, it says he was received up into glory, which, again, that could not possibly apply to God because he's already glorious. So, the conclusion. When the clear statement from Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 is included, the strong proof of possible scribal corruption is included, and the obvious reference to the listed items we just discussed to Messiah and not to God are considered, then it is obvious that 1 Timothy 3.16 does not prove the deity of Yeshua the Messiah, regardless of what the man-God Messiah, God-in-the-flesh idolatrous promoters say. Now, let me briefly go back and touch on scribal manipulation scribal manipulation. All right, it is a fact, and it makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable, and some Christians just outright deny it, even though it is not deniable. It's irrefutable. The There are thousands of manuscript fragments. See, the thing is, we don't, there really aren't what you would say complete documents of, say, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whatever. Most of the stuff are fragments that have been found. Fragments of the Gospel of Matthew, fragments of Hebrews, fragments of the letter to the Romans. That's what most of the stuff is. And there are thousands, literally thousands, of various manuscript fragments. And there are, I'm sure there are some almost complete manuscripts. And here's the thing. Between those manuscripts that are known of, there are also thousands of differences. Yes, they do not agree 100%. They do not say the same thing. The Greek manuscripts can vary. One manuscript may say one thing, another manuscript says another thing. The point is, they vary. There's variation in the manuscripts significant variation in the manuscripts. That is a fact, people. Now, but don't worry about it. Why? Because it is also a fact that the variations in almost all cases, overwhelmingly, are very, very minor, meaning they don't change the the meaning of a verse. All right? So, um... It's like, I'll give you an example, just off the top of my head. It's like, uh, I ate the apple, or I ate an apple. Wait a minute, there's a variation there. In one case, I say, I ate the apple. In the other case, I say, 
I ate an apple. Uh-oh, there's a difference there. One says the, the other says it, but it means the same thing, people. In other words, whether I say I ate an apple or I ate the apple, the, the important point is I, I ate an apple. <laughs> okay, so that's what I mean by most of the variations are, they have no effect whatsoever on the passages, all right? So that's why people should, they shouldn't deny the fact that there are variations in the New Testament manuscripts. They shouldn't do that because that's lying. That's just blatantly lying. But they should also not be anxious and upset about it because most of the time, the variations do not impact the text. However, sometimes they do. And 1 Timothy 3.16, what we just read, is a classic case, a classic example of where the variation in manuscripts actually do affect the verse. They directly affect the verse. And there are other passages which, strangely, it's interesting to me how many of them are talking about the alleged deity of Messiah. But my, here's, how you ver- here's how you get around that. Here's why it's no problem. We have, there. first of all, there's so many different translations. So you can just look at a different translation. See, if, if you come upon a passage such as this one, 1 Timothy 3.16, that says that's stating something that's very important, and it's like, uh-oh, is this, does this mean Jesus or Yeshua is God? Instead of just taking what the King James says, which unfortunately King James fanatics do, you want to go to another translation and see what it says. The one I like is the NET, New English Translation. It's also good to have uh, Hebrew and Greek lexicons and concordances, the exhaustive strong concordance. There's, there's a wealth of information out there and study aids that make this not an issue, okay? So the fact that there are indeed thousands of variations among the thousands of manuscripts and manuscript fragments of the New Testament that are in Greek isn't, isn't a big deal. It really isn't. Now, you'll have people make it a big deal. For instance, Jewish kind of missionaries. I mean, they'll use that and they talk about how the New Testament is bogus, it's garbage. Well, first of all, they're wrong, and I think they know they're wrong. But second of, second of all, it's like, uh, excuse me, they don't even follow the Bible themselves at all. They follow the Talmud. They, now, now, they'll say otherwise, but they're liars. I have studied Ju- Judaism for almost three decades now, okay? Their Bible is not the Bible. Their prophets, their teachers, their gods is not God. Whatever the sages say, that is their God. And I'll talk about that in the future. They study in the yeshiva. They don't study the Tanakh or the Bible. They don't study the Hebrew Bible. In their yeshiva, in their Torah study schools, they study the Talmud. They study this massive, and I got, I got the Talmud. It's a massive volume of writings by the sages that they consider to be infallible. So for them to criticize New Testament is the very height of hypocrisy. And again, in, at some future point, I'll probably discuss that at length. But do not let yourself be badgered by an a anti-missionary, anti a counter-missionary who's of Judaism, because for them to attack the New Testament is just the, the very height of hypocrisy. They needed to shut up. Because they don't even follow the Bible at all. They follow the Talbot. Now, they're going to say they do, but no, they don't. Whatever their sages say, that's God said it. And uh, it's easy, easy, easy to prove. So they have no 
leg to stand on in terms of their of any any <laughs> criticisms they may have of the New Testament. They don't have a leg to stand on, and they need to shut their mouths because they're a bunch of hypocrites. So, all right. So I've gone rambled all over the place in this discussion, but my, my point was to start off, of course, with 1 Timothy 3.16, and we went through it, and I, I showed how it does not prove that Messiah is God, and you'll often come across people who will throw that in your face. Well, 1 Timothy 3.16, look, look, it says God was manifest in the flesh. Uh, no, it doesn't. And now you know how to respond to something like that. All right? And... um. There are books I'll recommend, for instance, the book The Doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity's Self-Inflicted Wound by Sir Anthony Buzzard is an excellent book. Uh, in the back of that book, it has a, an index of various passages that are used by those who want to promote the Trinity or God in the flesh. And he does, he's very good. That's one of the original best books that refutes the God in the flesh uh, doctrine. And matter of fact, it's so bad, it's basically censored. And people who believe God in the flesh, I've, I've attempted to get them to read the book. They refuse to even read it. It destroys the Trinity. And that's not the only one. I've got other books, and I'll have to go dig them up and think about them because I hadn't actually read them. I only recently got them. But uh, on the Tor Messiah website, tormessiah.org, there's a study of a bookshelf page and over time, I've put, and I will continue to put, recommended books there, things worth reading. But the book, The Doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity's Self-Inflicted Wound, is a must-have book, again, by Sir, Sir Anthony Buzzard. And as I said, it is so destructive to the Trinity. It disproves it so powerfully that Trinitarians and others who believe God is, that Messiah is God, they won't even read it. And they do not want people to even know of its existence. Okay, so I'll shut up now. I have rambled on. This has been a particularly rambleful discussion here. So I'll stop here and shut up. And I appreciate you listening and join me again. And we'll continue on with the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. Thank you.